0: Good morning. I am uh, humbled to stand before you today and preach this message uh, largely because I feel inadequate to do so. I feel so for two different reasons that come to mind. For one, we've been working through the book of James together as a faith family. Uh, For the past about three months now, past 11 weeks, this is week number 12 as we wrap up the book of James, and Pastor Donald has been faithfully leading us through that and teaching us some valuable lessons that James has been teaching us, and to have the the command of of wrapping that up with a, a nice little bow and ribbon um, is a very challenging task after having been faithfully led through that for 11 weeks. So I feel unworthy to do so, but that is a task that I've been assigned with. Uh, the second reason that kind of comes to mind, as I began studying this passage, we're going to be looking at James 5, very end of it, verses 13 through 20. And a quick glance helps you to see really quickly that this passage is all about prayer. And prayer is something that I certainly have not mastered in my own life. That is definitely an area in my own life where there is uh, much room for growth and not something that I would uh, characterize as one of my strengths. And so to be speaking on such a topic um, makes me feel inadequate to do so. But I can proclaim along with Paul that in my weakness, he is made strong. And it is not of my own uh, worthiness or my own uh, ability that I stand before you today, but it is because of the perfect word of God that I am proclaiming that has no imperfections, that has no flaws. And so um, through the power of his word and through the Holy Spirit speaking through me, Um, I know that my own imperfections and my own inadequacies can be overcome very easily. And so that is what I lean on, and that is what I trust on this morning as we dive into James chapter 5. So, without further delay, go ahead and open up your Bibles to James chapter 5. And as we've been working through this... Each week, we've had somebody come up and quote to us the passage that we are specifically looking at. And I want to give a a quick shout-out to everybody who has partnered alongside of us and come up and quoted that in front of everybody. That is not an easy task to do, and we have done it awesomely as, as a church body. So go ahead and give a round of applause to everybody who has come up and done so so far. I want to give a special shout out to my wife who completely rocked it. She came up here on her due date, nine months pregnant, and quoted her passage without flaw. Um, I'm very, very excited and very proud to be uh, engaged in life and um, have such a wonderful partner in ministry that the God, that Lord has, has blessed me with. Um, and so, it's a special shout out to her. So, looking at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, do we have anybody who is ready to quote that for us. I've been told there is somebody. There's some people. Looks like multiple people. Okay. We've got more than one. All right. Okay. Time. Get him in order. Kurt told me earlier this week that he had somebody in mind. He didn't tell me there was multiple people in mind. So, Got twenty. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, verse thirteen is: Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. James five fourteen. <laughs> the prayer of faith will save the sick person and the lord will raise him up if he has committed sins he will be forgiven verse 15 verse 16 therefore commit, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect Verse 17 says, For Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, but he prayed earnestly that it would not rain on the land, and for three years and six months it did not rain. Again he prayed, and the heavens opened, and rain fell upon the earth, and the um, earth produced its crops. Uh, whosoever um, brings a brother back, I'm messing this one up, sorry, and, um, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the faith, then someone should bring them back. Remember this. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. All right. Give it up for our student! Awesome job. I do have to say, it is a joy and a privilege to be together with brothers and sisters who are treasuring the Word of God in their hearts and willing to come up here and quote it. And I just want to give another shout-out to our students. I mean, we've had two previous students who have come up and quoted it on their own, and then we had a group of students come up, and that, uh, if you've tried doing that, you know it's not an easy task. So good job, everybody. So, alrighty. righty. Um, as we see from this passage that James restate some of the letters themes so he's kind of wrapping things up and and closing his letter here Um, he he restates some of the themes such as trials that's the first one that kind of stands out to me that he opened up the book with and in verse two through four we're going to take a closer look at that as well when we dive into the passage but the main theme that he focuses here is that of prayer which James is claiming to be the ultimate answer for life's challenges before we dive in, I got three points. I hope you got a bulletin with you. There's three points, really only two points. Um, the first and second points really go hand in hand. Point number two is really just an expansion on point number one. Um, before we go into our, into the passage, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask that you would visit us here this morning, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive your word, knowing that your word is the ultimate authority in our lives. Father, I pray that, um, Lord, every single heart in here would be tuned to what your spirit has to say to us, and that we would not leave this place disobediently, that we would be open to whatever your word wants to say to us this morning. pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So three points. First point is this. A prayer of faith is the answer to any situation. I think we see that in verses 13 through 14. Let me reread that for us. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Three different life circumstances that James gives here for us. The first one is this. Is anyone among you suffering? And the life circumstance I think he's talking about there is is a life circumstance of trouble. Suffering in verse 13 means suffering in difficult circumstances. Uh, One way you could translate that is in trouble. Is anyone among you in trouble? I think we're all aware that there are sufferings in this life. Life is not always dandelions and roses and rainbows. There's challenges. There's difficult moments of life. And and that's what James is talking about here. um, We all face them. Every single person in this room has faced challenges and will face challenges in the future. It reminds me of how James began this letter. If you flip back just a page to James chapter 1 and verse 2 through 4, he talks about something very similar. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, count it all joy when you come across these sufferings, these trials, these troubles. Some of us may be thinking, if God is good, why does he even allow those things in the first place? Why does he allow trials? Why does he allow troubles? Why does he allow sufferings in our life? We came back from, uh, from camp about two weeks ago, and the speaker there, a guy named ReCab, was talking on a similar topic. He wasn't talking from this passage. But he was talking about God, and he put it this way, and I love the way that he puts it. He says, God allows us to experience limitations So that we will turn to the one who has no limitations. We all have shortcomings. We all have weaknesses. And that is intentional by God. He made us as dependent beings so that we would lean on him when those sufferings, when those trials, when those challenges come in our life. Because he wants us to realize that he is the only one without those imperfections, without those limitations. He made us so that we would come to Him, him, that we would draw to Him, that we would turn our face to Him. And that's exactly what James is talking about here. Are you suffering? Let him pray. Fix your gaze, fix your eyes upon Christ, the one who has no limitations, who has no sufferings, who can fill in for you in those moments. But he doesn't just talk about trouble. It's not the only life circumstance that we encounter. We also come across the other, the opposite end of the spectrum, happiness, joy, cheer. So he says, what, what do we do when we have cheerful moments? I mean, I think all of us are aware that life, a lot of times, resembles a roller coaster. There's high points, there's low points. He's just addressed the low point with suffering. Now he's talking about the other end of the spectrum, the high points. What do we do and then? Well, we sing a, a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. And if you look at the Psalms, you see it littered with, Uh, All kinds of songs of prayer and praise and thanksgiving uh, that is being offered up to the Lord when he uh, gives us victory over certain areas of our lives. And that's what James is instructing us to do here as well. There's also a third category of life that James addresses here, and that is of sickness. We see that in verse 14. Let's look at verse 14 together. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That phrase, anointing with oil, is interesting, and I want to highlight that. It is, I believe it's it's symbolic, representing the healing power of the Holy Spirit to come upon the sick person. And I gave you a couple passage references there in your bulletin that uh, you can look at. Um, It's rooted all the way back in Exodus 28, verse 41. Uh, But then we we see several examples of that uh, kind of throughout the Old Testament. We actually opened up our service by looking at an example of the anointing of oil, um, in the Psalms passage. But we see, when we get to the New Testament, we see oil used in significant ways as well. And Mark six thirteen is one that I want to uh, look at a little closer together as, as we better understand what, what James is talking about here. Mark chapter 6, verse 13 says this. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, this obviously is in the context of Jesus sending out his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles. And he sends them out with power and authority. And part of the power and authority that he sends them out with is able to do this. Cast out demons, but also be able to heal the sick by anointing them with oil. And so we see this taking place kind of all throughout Scripture in multiple different places. And James finishes by saying... um, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. I think what he is referring to here is that it is not the oil that has any kind of magical power. I was actually uh, grew up in a, a church where they actually practiced this in a very literal way. And so the, the pastor during the, the altar call was down up front, and if anybody was sick in the congregation, they could come forward, and he had a little flask of oil that um, when they came forward and asked for prayer and asked for anointing of oil— the uh, rest of the staff and the deacons of that body would come together and surround him and lay their hands on him and, and pray for that person and anoint them with oil in a very literal way, fulfilling this. But it was very clear that there was no special magical power in the oil in itself. The, the prayer was to God. It was The oil was simply symbolic, saying um, we are uh, following what Scripture has said here and we are asking the Lord to do the healing. We're not asking the oil to do the healing. The Lord is the one who provides the power for that. And I think James is is communicating a very similar thing here as well. So we see that in these first two verses, there's a prayer for any and every situation. No matter what life circumstance you find yourself in, whether it's suffering, a very low point in your life, or the exact opposite, happiness, cheer, joy, or maybe you're, you're in the midst of sickness, the answer is Prayer. Pray to the Lord. And that brings us to our second point, which is an expansion of the first point. second point is this. A prayer of faith is the answer to any situation because it brings the power of God. We see that in verses 14 through 18. Now, I want to break down that point a little bit for us before we kind of dive into it. Um, prayer of faith. Let's look at that real quick. What, what is the prayer of faith? James talks about this at the beginning of verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. So what is the prayer of faith? Well, the prayer of faith is a prayer offered when you know the will of God. Think about a couple weeks ago, Pastor Allen led us through the end of James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And talked about knowing the will of God there. Um, and so here, um, James is, is kind of, I think he's referencing back to that, those verses there at the end of chapter 4. And uh, in this situation, that the elders would seek the mind of God in the issue and then pray according to his will. So as the elders came forward and prayed over that person, they would be seeking the mind of God, seeking out what his will was in that situation. And these group of elders, this is a, this is a body of spiritually mature men. They're elders in the church who seek God's will and pray. It reminds me a little bit of the story of the paralytic. Think about that story with me. Um, it's recorded in Mark chapter 2. We're actually going to turn there in just a minute. Mark chapter 2, think about the story of the paralytic. There's a uh, the story told where, where Jesus is teaching in somebody's house, and he is surrounded by crowds, lots and lots of crowds. So much so that when these friends, these four friends, bring a paralytic lying on a mat, they can't get to him. And so what do they do? Go up to the roof of the house, tear it open, and lower him down to Jesus. And when he gets lowered down to Jesus, what is Jesus' response? Take a look at it. Mark chapter um, 2, Mark chapter 2, verse 5. When he gets lowered down to Jesus, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus saw their faith, Oh, let's think about faith here, this prayer of faith. Who is demonstrating faith here? Think about in the James passage, in the prayer of faith, who is demonstrating faith here in James? Well, I think it's both the sick person by calling on the elders and the ones who are praying. Let's think through that a little bit. If you have absolutely no belief that prayer is going to do you any good, and you're not going to come forward and ask people to pray over you. So just by coming forward, you're demonstrating faith. You're, you're demonstrating the fact that, man, I believe that, power, that prayer is powerful and effective, and so I'm asking the elders of the church to pray over me. And so that in and of itself is a demonstration of faith. But there's also faith needed on the behalf of those who are praying. And I think we see that demonstrated in both places. When we look at the story of, of Jesus there in Mark 2 with the story of the paralytic, Um, we got Jesus, who I think is pretty much given, has faith. Um, He walked his entire life according to faith, so that's pretty much a given. But we also see the faith of the friends and the paralytic himself by the way that Jesus responds. He says, and when he saw their faith, when he saw the faith of the friends who lowered him down, when he saw the faith of the paralytic coming before Jesus, that's when he was able to do the miracle. We see this happening a lot throughout Scripture, but we also see the exact opposite side of the story. Now, did Jesus ever waver in his faith? I don't think so. But there's a couple times recorded in Scripture where Jesus went into a town and it says that he was unable to perform many signs and wonders there. Why? Because of their lack of faith. And so faith is needed on both the one doing the prayer performing the miracle, but also the one receiving the, the miracle, receiving the prayer. And so that's important to keep in mind when we're going to the Lord in prayer, when we go to the Lord with a prayer of faith. So that's what a prayer of faith is. Second thing I wanted to look at in this point, a prayer of faith is the answer to any situation because it brings the power of God. What does it mean by this power of God? Well, I think the power here is to heal the sickness caused by original sin healing from what I think it's I think James here is referring to both a physical and spiritual healing both physical and spir- spiritual healing are being referred to here let's let 's look at the verses verse fourteen through sixteen the the context is really important for understanding this. It appears that, that some are sick because of the sins that they have committed. We see this in verse fifteen. The end of verse fifteen it says, "And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven." The Greek translation of that last part of verse fifteen um, literally translate this way says, "If he has been constantly sinning." James uh, seems is is describing at least one believer who is sick because he is being disciplined by God. And I think we see biblical examples of this, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, but that kind of leads to the second point that we see in verse, verse 16. Uh, that person then confesses their sin. So um, they are, are sick, um, maybe because of, because of original sin, but also maybe because of personal sin, and they confess their sin. And sometimes confession in the community is needed before healing can take place, since sin could be the cause of illness. And we see an example of that in 1 Corinthians. We see actually multiple examples of that, but I want to point us to one. 1 Corinthians, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there where we see an example of this taking place. 1 Corinthians, written by Paul, talking to the church at Corinth. He's addressing the topic of the Lord's Supper. And starting in, in, in verse 27, as he's talking about the Lord's Supper... He says, it's really important how we approach the Lord's Supper. Saying, you need to be examining yourself. Because if you don't examine yourself, then you can be eating and drinking condemnation on yourself. And after saying that, he kind of sums it up in in verse 30. He says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So there, Paul is... um, making the equation that, uh, remember, this is written to a group of believers, a group of believers in the church of Corinth that are actively participating in the Lord's Supper. So they are already saved, already washed by the blood of Jesus. But you see here an example of um, our sickness can be a, a rooted in personal sin, but I think is always rooted in uh, the, the fact that we live in a fallen world. If you go back to the beginning of creation, God created everything perfect and uh, without flaw. And because of sin, that is where sickness and everything else comes from. And so even though our sickness may not be... uh, uh, directly rooted or the result of personal sin in our lives? Um, I think the answer is that it's always rooted in uh, the sin of the world. And always, The root cause is always from sin that has come into this world. Third point that um, we see here in regards to the power to heal the sickness caused by original sin is that. Um, this person is then healed by the prayer of faith. So they first of all, um, it appears that some are sick because of sins they have committed. And then that person then confesses their sin. And then the third thing is that that person is healed by the prayer of faith. And again, it's not the anointing that heals, but it's the praying. So there's a few practical lessons that I think we can take from these first two points. One, hopefully you got your bulletin and you got the opportunity to write down. There's uh, three practical lessons here. ...that I have for us. And I encourage everybody to write these down. Practical lessons that we see from verses uh, 13 through 18. First is this, that disobedience to God can lead to sickness. Disobedience to God can lead to sickness. Not necessarily always, but can. I think Paul makes that clear in the First Corinthians 11 passage. Second point, second practical lesson I think we can take from this is that sin affects the whole church. Notice the communal aspect that James is talking about here. Talking about the elders coming over, anointing him, praying for him. And then he says in verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. There's a communal aspect going on here that this sin has not only affected that particular individual, but it's also affected the entire church. So sin affects the whole church. And the third practical lesson that I think we can pull from this is that there is healing, both physical and spiritual healing, when sin is dealt with. There is healing that comes when we deal with our sin. So I ask you, when is the last time that you confessed your sin to one another? When is the last time that you went to a dear, beloved brother or sister in Christ and confessed your sin to them? I think that's a practice that we, unfortunately, do not practice near often as we should. So my question is, are you praying in faith? James talks a lot about here the, this prayer of faith. And a prayer of faith brings the power of God. And we see that Elijah in verses 17 through 18 is a perfect example of that. It's almost as if James works through this. Verse 16 he says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then he's like, all right, hold on. Let me, let me give you an example of this. Think about this dude named Elijah. Elijah, he was a guy just like you and me. He had a nature just like ours. And he prayed fervently. He prayed this prayer of faith fervently that it might not rain. And what happened? For three years and six months... It did not rain. And then at the end of three years and six months, all of a sudden it started raining again. Why did that happen? Well, James tells us. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. James is equating the fact that it stopped raining and the fact that it started raining were rooted in the prayers of Elijah, saying this is an excellent example for us of a righteous person uh, demonstrating great power as they are praying. And that leads us to our third point. And I want to finish by kind of reflecting on these last two verses and kind of working through this a little bit slowly because as I was preparing for this message, this is the close of the book of James. This is the letter that he's written. And it's quite different from most of the letters that we see in the New Testament. When we look at um, most of the other letters, they typically have two things in their ending. They have a, a type of like, almost like a shout out to different friends. Think of, think of Paul. Paul's a great example of this. Almost every letter that he closes, he, he's writing to a specific church and he says, hey, say hi to Timothy or to Aquila and Priscilla, and he kind of shouts out these different names of saying, hey... Send my greetings to these people. Um, And we don't see any of that here in James. I think part of the reason is that, obviously, Paul is writing to a specific church. So he's writing to the church in Corinth, the church that meets in Ephesus. Um, Whereas that is different from the nature of James. James, if you remember to the very beginning, he's writing to uh, the 12 tribes dispersed in the area. And so he is writing to a group of churches in several different areas. So that's one reason that um, we don't see that. But we also see in most of the other letters written in the New Testament a type of benediction where Paul would say something similar to, Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all uh, to the ends of the earth. Amen. And again, we don't see that here in James. But we see something quite different. In the last two verses, when I first began starting to prepare for this message... Um, On initial reading, it seems like these two verses are completely disconnected from what he has just talked about. He's been talking about prayer very clearly in verses 13 through 18. And you notice that prayer is not mentioned at all in verse 19 and 20. But even though prayer is not specifically mentioned in these verses, I think it's very clear that the implication is there. And upon further studying and kind of digging in a little deeper, we see that verses 19 through 20 is an extension of what he's talking about and very connected to this topic of prayer. And so let's just kind of work through these last two verses together and pause to think about some of the things that James is saying here and the last words that he uses to close out his letter. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. My brothers, pause there and think about that just for a minute. It's easy for us to quickly run over in our reading. Uh, Phrases like this that seem insignificant, that don't seem to give any meaning to what is being talked about here. But I think there's a lot of significance behind James saying, my brothers. When we think about that for a minute, remember he's writing to the 12 tribes in this version. He's writing to a bunch of different groups of churches. And he's saying that, man, you are our brothers in Christ. Notice the significance of that. Saying, doesn't matter what walk of life you come from. Doesn't matter if you got a Gentile background or a Jewish background. Doesn't matter if you speak Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic or something else. You are all united under the blood of Christ. And I think that's an important word for us this morning. That it doesn't matter what our background is, it doesn't matter what our socioeconomic status is doesn't matter what our skin color is or what kind of job we have. We are united under the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are to view each other in that light as brothers and sisters in Christ. And the same is true around the world. We had the privilege of hearing from Dan this morning about the work that they're doing in Ecuador. That's one of the reasons that I love doing missions is that we get the opportunity of going down to a completely different ethnic group that look a lot different than us, that talk a lot different than us, that live their lives much different than us, but yet are united under the blood of Jesus Christ, and I can call them brothers and sisters. That is a beautiful and wonderful thing. But we also see something else that I think is really significant about this use of my brothers. And this is actually the eighth time that James has used this specific phrase in Greek throughout James and I actually went back and kind of marked them cuz I was curious as I kind of stumbled upon this in my studies but the first one there is in verse 2 of chapter 1 and then you see multiple others as you work through the book of James and this is the very last one the eighth one eighth time that James uses this specific phrase and interestingly enough Paul uses the phrase my brothers the Greek phrase my brothers eight times in all 13 of his letters as well. And I highlight that for several different reasons, but the main reason being... um, a lot of people try to kind of drive a wedge between the teachings of Paul and the teachings of James. And Pastor Allen has addressed this multiple times as we've kind of worked through the book of James together. Uh, but a lot of people would say that that, James, that Paul is, te- is preaching a gospel of, of salvation through faith in Christ alone. Whereas James is preaching a completely different gospel and saying, no, we are, we are saved by our works. And as Pastor Alan has, has mentioned um, a bunch of times, uh, that is definitely not true. We see over and over again, as you look a little bit deeper, that they are not preaching two different Gospels. They're not preaching two different means of salvation. They are unified and uh, complement each other in a very real and very beautiful way. And I think this is just one simple way that we see that through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, this unifying aspect between the teachings of Paul and the teachings of James. They are both preaching and teaching the exact same thing. And this is one example of how we see that being true. But he goes on, says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, I want to look at that phrase, wanders from the truth, real quickly. Remember that these are brothers among you. So these are fellow believers in Christ. I think when when I think of somebody who has wandered from the truth, uh, I think I'm too quick to um, jump to the conclusion that, as as Paul says, um, they departed from us because they were never amongst us. That uh, they've they've wandered from the truth. They've left the gospel because they weren't true believers in the first place. And I think James is is warning us against ha- jumping to that conclusion of of having that attitude. He's saying guard against the immediate conclusion that when someone strays from the gospel, strays from the truth that they are not believers. Guard yourself against that. How they respond to the truth when someone brings them back, I think that is a better determining factor as to whether they're a genuine believer or not. And so when we think about wandering from the truth, this wandering can be um, two different ways in both belief and in behavior. Belief, think of the different ways in which we can wander or stray from the gospel in our belief. There are all kinds of philosophies and ideologies out there that are contrary to what the Word of God teaches. And uh, James is, is warning us against um, uh, wandering from the truth in that way, but also in our behavior. And I think we see an example of this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. Turn there with me. Galatians two fourteen. Paul gives us an example of, of somebody wandering from the truth. And again, he's talking about a believer here. He's actually talking about Peter himself. Galatians 2.14 But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Paul here is calling out Peter Very clearly a believer in the gospel who by their behavior, by their conduct have wandered from the truth. Then James goes on and says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. I want to reflect on that phrase, someone brings him back. This person has wandered away from the truth Notice that it's really ambiguous, this language that James chooses to use. Someone. Who is this someone? I think it's ambiguous for a specific reason. I think he's saying, if you know somebody in your life who has wandered from the truth, I hope that that someone is you who goes to that person in love and speaks the truth to him in order to bring him back to the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. And that's the beautiful thing about this, is that God uses people to keep his children near. Is God able to bring those people back on his own? Yes. Just the way that God is able to save people without us. But he chooses to use us to bring people to salvation, and not only just to bring people to salvation, he chooses to use us to help bring people back to the truth when they have wandered from it. What a beautiful privilege that God has allowed us to be a part of. It makes me think of the parable of the lost sheep. Think about that parable that Jesus shares with us. talks about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, gets back to the sheep pen, and he starts counting them, and he gets up to ninety-nine and realizes that one has wandered away. One has wandered from the truth. And what does he do? He leaves the 99 in a place that is safe for them, and goes out and searches after that one who has wandered away, and brings them back. And we are called to do the exact same thing that Jesus is sharing there in that parable. Parable of the lost sheep. Many of us think about that in regards to somebody who is not saved. But I think even though that may be an accurate way of thinking about that, I think we can also apply that to believers who have wandered from the truth. Why do I say that? Well, because of of what James is talking about here in the context. Verse 20 says, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Think about the end of um, that parable Jesus talks about um, uh, whoever uh, saves a a sinner is, let's take a look at it, Um, uh, Luke chapter 15 I believe is where it's at, Luke chapter 15, refresh our memory on it, refresh my memory on it, parable of the lost sheep, Jesus in that parable in verse 7 it says just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance they're talking about the parable of the lost sheep the 99 who have stayed the sinner who repents I think James is intentionally using in similar language here whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering that one sheep who has strayed, who has wandered from the truth, someone needs to go out in love and bring them back to the truth of the gospel. Anytime we wander from the truth, it opens us up to a multitude of sins. Because it's only in the truth of the gospel that all of our sins are covered. Think about this sheep, this brother, sister in Christ, who has wandered from the truth. They've wandered away from the gospel And whenever we step out away from the gospel, that is when we open ourselves up to a multitude of potential sins. Because it is only under the gospel that every single one of our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So a few practical lessons that I think we can take from these last two verses and how James closes his letter here. Be this, and I challenge you again to, to write this down in your notes. Should be a little space there for you. First one is this, if we have wandered from the truth, let us, as verse 16 commands us, be quick to confess our sins to one another. All of us are prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love, as the hymn puts it. We're all prone to wander from the truth. If we have wandered from the truth, when that happens in our life, let us not tarry, let us not delay, but let us be quick to confess our sins, not only to God, but to our dear brothers and sisters around us. I think that's what James is instructing us to do here. Practical lesson number two that we can take away is that we need to pray for those who have strayed. I think if we were to think long enough, all of us could come up with at least one person who has strayed from the truth. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Pray for those people who have strayed from the truth. And if we were going to help a brother or sister who has strayed, we have to have an attitude of love. We speak the truth in love, as Paul instructs us in Ephesians chapter 3. Our desire is reconciliation. So think about that just for a minute. Just the very thought of going to a brother or sister who has wandered from the truth and trying to bring them back, for many of us, creates a really thick lump in in our throats. Just the very thought of that. It is not an easy task. But I want to give us the opportunity to at least start down this direction together as a faith family. When you walked in, you should have gotten a little uh, yellow piece of paper. I want to instruct everybody to, to kind of bring that out. And I want you to get a writing utensil, whether that's a, a pen or pencil or chapstick. I want everybody to get out something to write with. I want everybody to participate in this. And as, as we're doing this, I'm going to invite the, uh, the worship team to, to come up. And they're going to just begin playing some music in the background So I want to invite everybody to get out uh, their yellow paper here. Get out a writing utensil. And I want you to write out people in your life who have wandered from the truth. I think if every one of us thinks long enough, we know at least one person in our life who has wandered from the truth of God's word, who has wandered from the truth of the gospel, who has strayed. I want you to write that person. Or if multiple people come to your mind, write that out. Whether you write one or 20 people out, allow the Spirit to kind of lead in whatever direction that is. If you can't think of anybody, maybe some of us need to write our own names on that paper. Maybe some of us, through the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, have realized that, man, I've begun to wander. I've begun to stray from the truth of the gospel. Whether it's in belief or in behavior I've begun to wander maybe our own names are who we need to write on that piece of paper and by writing them down you're committing to pray for them and as the spirit leads as we pray prayer of faith over this person and as the spirit leads you to do so I want to challenge you to step out of your comfort zone to bring them back to the truth Just as Jesus in the parable of the lost sheep left the comfort zone of the fence there and where he was familiar with to go out and find that sheep that had wandered from the truth, wherever that sheep was, and bring them back, Christ is calling us to do the same. Step out of our comfort zones. And as the Spirit leads, bring them back to the truth. Hopefully everybody's got somebody written down. want to challenge us to now begin bringing those names to the altar and submitting them to the Lord. As Pastor Allen has put it a few different times, delayed obedience is disobedience. So I want to give us the opportunity to respond in obedience. Our invitation is going to look a little bit different this morning. I want to invite everybody to, if you're able, I know some may not be able to, but if you're able to come to this altar and present them, present these people to the Lord, and begin immediately in obedience, praying for them, praying that God would intervene in their lives, that God would bring them back to the truth of the gospel, I want to challenge our men to lead in this way. The scripture is very clear that. Um, the men are called to be leading their families. And so if you have your family here with you, I challenge you to bring your family to the altar. If you don't have your family here, you can still lead by coming yourself and lead our our faith family here in obedience. So I want to ask you to join me here at the altar as we, we pray for these people.